Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. I want to read you a quote from a book I read this weekend. All right. I'm slightly editing it, and I'll explain why when I finish. When I first saw the movie, it was brand new, the latest thing. I saw it as soon as it came out when I was at that point of maximum responsiveness or aliveness, when my ability to respond to the medium was still so vulnerable and susceptible to being changed and shaped by what I was seeing. At a certain point, if you keep up to date with new releases, books, records, films, even if you keep broadening your horizons, even if you manage to keep up with the latest things, you realize that these latest things can never be more than that, that they stand almost no chance of being the last word because you actually heard or saw or read your personal last word years earlier. This is from a book by Jeff Dyer called Zona, and the movie he's talking about is Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker, which is probably my second favorite movie of all time, or at least the movie I've seen the most times, the second most times in my life. It's an extraordinary existential science fiction movie. And it's such an obsessive movie that Jeff Dyer wrote an entire book about it. And wonderful book, really entertaining. What he does is he basically talks about each shot in the movie, but he's not just talking about the movie and the production. He's talking about people and characters and his experience having seen this movie dozens of times, literally dozens of times. I think the first time he saw it, he was on acid. So it was kind of an unforgettable experience. And this made me think of two things. The first is we've often talked about how people don't really discover new music after the age of 30 or after they have children when they don't have time. And a lot of that is because they're no longer at that stage that they can think that the new music is the greatest thing they've heard. The other thing I want to talk about is what we call imprinting. When, particularly among classical music listeners, they talk a lot about the first version of a piece of music that they really got that's imprinted on them to the point that they compare all the other versions to that imprinted one. And it's hard for the later versions to usurp the one that's imprinted in them. That's all very interesting. I had a similar thing with my next track pick last time i was talking about a, a a collection of strauss waltzes i'm a nut about strauss waltzes and this particular collection that i that i longed for had what were considered to be the best recordings of particular pieces by different orchestras and different groups and so those are the songs those are the pieces that i compare every other Strauss waltz recording to, and there's no beating them. I'm sorry. So that's the Strauss factor. The get your yayas out factor is this is the album that I heard at the most impressionable age possible. I was like maybe 13 and a half, and I heard get your yayas out. It's a live Rolling Stones album. I've talked about it many times. It's probably the album that made the most impression on me ever. I mean, there are, I have other albums that I really enjoy, but Get Your Yaya's is kind of like is where I staked my claim and said, this is the kind of music that I like. It's got rock and roll on it. It's got boogie on it. It's got British, you know, it, everything about that record has all the things in it that I like. And everything else is not necessarily consciously compared 
to ex- uh, to uh, <laughs> I almost said exile on Main Street to get your yayas out. But that energy and that sort of uh, uh, just the, just the essence of the album is what I, I find so appealing. So I I agree, I, I agree with that. I and uh, but you can become obsessive like this gentleman and this particular film. So Jeff Dyer was definitely obsessive, but I understand that obsession. I first saw a Vim Vendor's Kings of the Road in a triple feature at a Vim Vendor's retrospective. I think it was early 1984. I left for France in the fall of 1984. In that triple feature was Stalker, the first time I saw it, and John Ford's film, The Searchers. Vendor's, he was programming these films together that influenced him or that he really liked. And Searchers was an influence for Vendor's three road movies he did. And he put Stalker in as another sort of road movie. And something about Kings of the Road hit me. And as Jeff Dyer describes in the book, where he would see Stalker every time it was playing in the cinema, wherever he was, I did the same thing with Kings of the Road. I was traveling once hitchhiking through France and I was walking through Bordeaux and I saw a cinema that had Kings of the Road. So I decided to stay to see it that evening, that sort of thing. Probably saw it a dozen times. Seen Stalker a half a dozen times. So I can understand that kind of obsession for seeing a movie. And again, movies are different than music. You can listen to an album so much more easily than seeing a three-hour movie, right? But that kind of obsession is born of that period of maximum responsiveness. And that's what's really interesting. Whether it was the recreational drugs in his system or whether it was that it's just the right time for that, right? The right time to receive that message. I wonder about that because, well, I mean, for a long period, you are open to finding these exciting things. I mean, you were talking about film, and one of my favorite films is Rebecca, the Daphne du Maurier novel turned into a film by Hitchcock. And um, that's the sort of thing where I'm obsessive about it. When Rebecca's on, I come to the TV and I watch it. So I understand that, but how come we don't have that anymore? How come we got old and didn't and and no longer have it as well? I still have it to some degree, but it's not as vigorous. It's not as robust as it was. It's not as consuming as it was when we were younger. I think a lot of it is, you know, how they say the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until you're 25, and I think there's a lot going on. And what we see in our late teens and early 20s really influences us a lot. And what we hear, the music we hear, the bands we see live, the books we read, all of that. And I think there are two things going on for me. One is when you're 18, you've seen X number of films. When you're 28 and 38 and 48, you've seen a whole bunch more films. So it's like when you when you bought those first two CDs you had, right? You had your first CD player and you bought two CDs and you were playing them over and over. And then you bought two more and 10 more and 20 more and they diluted. So you could never play any of them a lot. And your mind is being in some ways deluded by all the movies you've seen, all the records you've read, all the books you've read. Funny how that's not a conscious, you don't notice that. I mean, if you sat around and thought about it, you'd say, oh, I guess The Big Lebowski is better than The Wizard of Oz. But you don't, you don't consciously, you're not consciously aware that the quality that you're seeing is kind of like, dropping because everything sort of evens out. No, it's not necessarily the quality. It's not necessarily the quality. It's your ability to make a film unique because you've seen so many more. You're jaded. You're blasé over time. Funny that you mentioned The Wizard of Oz because in Jeff Dyer's book, he says he had always refused to see The Wizard of Oz. But 
Stalker, like the Wizard of Oz, starts out in black and white and then shifts to color. And so he finally gave up and saw the Wizard of Oz. What did he think of the Wizard of Oz? He didn't really say anything about it. Wizard of Oz book coming out? No. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm sure there are those, too. But it it did make me think. Now, I've... I don't know if I've mentioned on the podcast, but you know, the past couple of years, I've kept a list of the books I've read. I'd never done it before. I know these people do this on Goodreads and other things. And I was just curious. Someone had asked me a few years ago, how many books you read? And I don't, and I said, I don't know, 50, a hundred. So I decided to keep a list. In 2021, I read 135 books. In 2022, 146. And this year I thought, that's an awful lot of books. And I don't remember most of them. And, and reading for me is entertainment. And so this year I decided... Again, I don't know if I've mentioned on this podcast, I decided to explore video games and I bought an Xbox in January. So my reading is down to about half what it normally is in this period, would it be the end of March. I'm about 30 books. And looking back at those lists and thinking of, yes, it was enjoyable, but there's nothing memorable. It was fast food for the mind, right? And as we go through life, we just accumulate all these more experience and just add to it the fact that you had to go to a cinema to see a movie back in the day. I think it's interesting if we could talk about you for a minute. It's that you have cut <laughs> you've cut your book reading down for entertainment, but now you're a gamer. But you've been gaming for about what two you, months you, you now. You right? want you want to say I'm a gamer with a capital G, and I wouldn't say I'm a gamer with a capital G. I've been playing a few games, and I've been getting into it. One of the reasons is this is one of the major forms of entertainment in the world, and I wanted to learn more about it. But you are finding it that you are hooked. I mean, you're really enjoying it, right? I mean, you're not playing violent enjoying, games not, or anything. You're playing no. You're playing puzzle games, for lack of a better description. Let's just call them that. Yeah, the one that really got me into it is the Long Dark, which is a survival game. But I think for me, it's like I wanted to explore something new, and it's interesting because it put me in that state of receptivity because I didn't know about these. I played games on on iPhones and iPads, and I played Myst on my Mac back in the days and a couple of others, but I didn't know enough about them. So a lot of it is new. And of course, it makes it very easy for me to see how much these games all resemble each other. So you still, well, maybe, but you still got endorphins in the back of your head that are ready to come zooming and flying out when you receive the stimulus from the game. And I'm wondering, is your enthusiasm for the game maybe the way you had enthusiasm for London calling or the way, you know, is it that same kind of enthusiasm? I don't think so. Or is it more tape, more, more, maybe more refined, maybe more, a little more critical? Middle-aged. Rather, yeah, middle-aged. I mean, when you're 18 and you hear London calling, that's, you know, a kick in the teeth, right? Sure. It's not quite the same. I think I'm looking at things in more of a detached way than, than, than the sort of visceral feeling of music that, right. that's so powerful. But going back to music and film, I don't think you can ever go home again. You can never get that again because that period has passed and you're comparing everything to everything else. And, well, you think The Big Lebowski is a good movie. I think it's a boring movie. And so I'm going to say it's not as good as whatever other movie I think is better. And that then you're ranking things, you're you're reliving discussions with friends about which movies you liked, or you're like in the book and movie High Fidelity, you're making lists of the five best albums of whatever and that sort of thing. And all of that, particularly you having worked in a radio station, all of that makes you rank things and rate them. And it's it when we have so much content, it's hard to be 
totally into any given thing. I think also by the time you've reached our age, probably by the time you've reached middle age, you understand the form of the thing. So you know that an album is a certain number of songs. You know that a movie is going to be about two hours long and the story will resolve. There's a hero and a heroine and a bad guy. And a, you see, well, you begin not to really in stalker, but okay. But I mean, you understand these these tropes and the formality. Well, well, so of- one, of, one of the interesting things about Tarkovsky's films is that they are very slow. Long, slow dolly shots, long, slow zooms. So even if you've figured out the form... It's still an approach to cinema that is unique. Exactly. I, I, how, how you work with the form is that's what art is. But when you are familiar enough with the form that you can go from one movie to another and compare The Wizard of Oz and The Big Lebowski, then I think that you've intellectualized the form and, and therefore it's, there are some parts of a new thing that are not that exciting. I watched TCM, uh, Turner Classic Movies. And they'll run these old films. And I go, oh, that'll be exciting. But it's only exciting because of the way they filmed things or the way they wrote things or the way they... And that might sound obvious for a movie, but watching an hour and a half of recorded video is not a new experience. It's not fresh. It never will be. It's, it's the stuff that... You, you, it's understood that you're going to be sitting here for an hour and a half examining... An artistic form. Like I said, we had to go to the cinema back in the day. Yeah. When we first, when we got our first CDs, we didn't have many, so it was new. The medium was new at that point. When you got your first videotape recorder, it was the same thing. All that was new. So it had the sparkle of newness on top of it. You might have seen Casablanca on videotape once, and it was like, wow, I can see this without any commercials. And that was new. That was a new experience. Yes. Yes, that's true. Actually, that is the experience I think a lot of people had. Well, of course, that was the advantage of VHS tapes and renting tapes, no commercials. Now, now of course, we're spoiled with choice, and you can find a hundred things, a thousand things. If you go on Amazon Prime Video and Netflix and Apple TV Plus and all the other streaming services that I don't even know about, you, you can find thousands of things, most of which aren't great. And I think at our age, we are more critical about things because... I, when I look on it, I don't currently have a Netflix subscription, but when I look on Amazon Prime, we recommend these movies for you and I've seen all of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So finding new stuff is kind of difficult, but it's not even that. The, the point of Dyer's remarks there was that it was more than new. It was meta new. It, it, it was a new he hadn't expected that he could ever experience. It's like first time I read Samuel Beckett. That kind of thing. Totally shocked me. Never read anything like that. First time I read Proust in English, same thing. And uh, Proust is interesting because he talks a lot about memory and time and all that and going back to the past. And maybe every time we watch a new movie, we're trying to go back to the past. The first time we saw 2001, A Space Odyssey in a cinema, right? We're trying to relive that experience and we can never get it. That's, you know, I will cop to that. I always, and that's why we buy bigger TVs, right? And that's why we buy the bigger audio systems and because we want to hear what we like, but we want to hear it with that flourish and excitement and, and, and titillation and all of the other things that, that we got the first time around. You're probably right. We'll never get it again. You, how can you? How can you get it again? You, but, you're, but the obsessiveness, it's almost like you're searching for it. So it maybe. Maybe he's right. It, by obsessing on this film, 
he's tr- he's chasing that that feeling again. I see I see that kind of obsessiveness in two ways. I until I got an Apple Music subscription, I had about two dozen recordings of Box Goldberg variations. I had piano and harpsichord and string trio and organ. It wasn't an obsessiveness of a particular version, but an obsessiveness of the piece and the many ways it can be interpreted. And I found that really interesting. And the more you get into something like that, the more you internalize it, the more you memorize it. I could probably hum most of the main melody line of the entire Goldberg Variations, which is 50 to 60 minutes. I could probably do that without all the repeats and without the figured bass and stuff. I used to be able to do all of Thick as a Brick in my head, right? Back in the day, having listened to it so much. But what I think what you discover, I think music's very different from cinema because music, you don't have to pay attention to, right? It can be in the background. With a film, you discover the different layers of meaning that you hadn't noticed. You discover the resonances. And one of the fascinating things is all of the resonances he points out, both past and future. So in Stalker, there is this place called The Zone where something happened. Perhaps it was a meteorite that crashed. And the stalker is the guide who could go in there. It was all fenced off and you weren't allowed to go in there, but he could take people. And there was a room which would grant your deepest wish. When Chernobyl melted down in, was it 1986, 87, they built around it a an exclusion zone and the people who volunteered to go in there and clean up called themselves stalkers. So you've got a, you've got a forward and backward resonance. And, and in the movie, there's a lot of things that make you think about the gulag. This was, uh, the movie was released in 1979, so Russia in the 70s. You're thinking about the gulag. You're thinking about all of these things. You see these industrial, polluted industrial zones and everything. In fact, a number of the crew of Stalker died of cancer, probably because they were in this very polluted area in Estonia. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of like that film. I don't remember which John Wayne film was shot near where they did the nuclear testing in Utah and a whole bunch of people there died of cancer as well. But the resonance that goes forward with the influence of a film allows you to see other things through that light. The same way when you read a history book and you read past history, then you look at today's history, you know that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And you can apply those ideas and and you can think about, you, you can use it as a prism to look at certain things. I, th- I think he quotes Kate Blanchett, who said every frame of Stalker is burned into her retina. And there are people, it's one of those films that creates obsessives. And you, you've you probably not seen it. I haven't seen it. You can rent it from Apple. It's the Criterion Collection has recently restored version of it. I have Criterion. I'll accept that. Um, you can't recreate a lot of these things. You can't not only recreate, I mean, you could create something exactly like it, but that might not appeal to the obsessives. But I have... Uh, I, it's, it's it's a strange thing when when something when a, when a piece of art, for lack of a better expression, grabs you and holds on to you for the rest of your life. It's well, pretty strange. We we just that, that, how'd that happen? Look at how did it happen? Look at bands who are performing like the Eagles in their latest tour. They do the entire Hotel California album, then they do another two hours of hits. So all the people going there who are older than us for the most part. 
they want to relive that experience of the first time they heard Hotel California. You can never go home again. They're trying and they can't, but it's the the replace the synthetic version of it, right? It's the synthetic version of the endorphins that they had when they first heard that guitar solo. Yeah. And this is a lot of what we see in music. This is all of the bands who are at 70 and 80 still performing music from way back when. You two just did a, a very interesting four-disc set of, they reimagined, I think, 40 of their top best yeah. songs. I was listening to some of it yesterday in the kitchen. I don't really know you two a lot. I know a number of their songs. My son was into them for a short while. It sounds like they're in the studio. They got a 25-year-old McCallan because even though they're Irish, they know Scotch whiskey's better. And they're thinking, well, what can we do? Can't come up with any new songs. What if we did these a little different? And there's Fender Rhodes piano and acoustic guitar, and it's like the lounge version of U2 songs. And in a way, they're trying to find that original rush yeah. of when they were first performing in clubs instead of big impersonal stadiums. That's what I was hoping. When that was first announced, I, I remember tweeting. I said, I wish more older bands would do this. I don't want to hear them trying to imitate what they sounded like 30 years ago. I want to hear them try to do... I want to hear the Rolling Stones do... I don't know, country honk, the way, you know, they just sit around in the living room and play it. I don't want to hear the formalized version of it. I, same thing with the Eagles. Why do you guys, why can't you guys just wing it? Why, you know, rather than play the arrangements that everybody wants to hear, it would be so much more refreshing if you did, uh, uh, it, if you did it differently, but they don't. Well, they think, just, think of MTV Unplugged. Right. That was a great way of getting bands to do something like that. And I particularly like the Dylan Unplugged because not that he didn't do acoustic songs, but that he did different arrangements of a lot of songs. In yeah. There. And well, Dylan is never afraid to do that in live. Well, you know, he he's constantly changing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Same thing with the dead with their live stuff. You never know what you're going to get. But a lot of bands, they either can't do it because they I don't know, for whatever reason. But a lot of bands can't and won't do it. And I think a lot of bands could do it. And they'd sell just as many records had they just went on and did, uh, here's us playing in, in Denver doing the Hotel California. I don't want to hear that. I don't care about that. I think, I think a lot of bands are afraid their fans won't like it. More in live performance than in a new album. I, I would imagine if the Rolling Stones did an acoustic tour, they don't need the money. They can do small clubs, small thousand seat venues. Doesn't doesn't even have to be acoustic. It could just be forget the arrangement, just play it. You know, just well as I've often said, they're the best Rolling Stones tribute band there is out there. Let me just say that I'll just say this because the Rolling Stones kind of have done it with "Get Your Yayas Out" to bring it back to that. If you listen to Midnight Rambler, that's back in the early that's the early days of the Rolling but Stones. Every song, that's fifty years ago. Every song on that live album sounds completely different from its studio version. And it's because they had to make accommodations for electric instruments. On the uh, original recordings, I mean, Simply for the Devil had a piano and congas and people going woo-woo. Sure. The live version doesn't have that at all. But none of it. It's, if you didn't know it was Sympathy for the Devil, same thing with Midnight Rambler. It's a lot more chonka-chonka than the acoustically thing. But anyway, I don't want to get hung up on Get Your Yaya's Out in the Rolling Stones. I'm sure you have an interesting next track pick. I do. 
You know, I kind of gotten to the point where when Apple Music says, here's what's new that I do find things I want to listen to. So a few days ago, a new recording of two Mozart string quintets came up by the Quattro Ben, which is a string quartet that I appreciate. These are the 515 and 516 string quintets. There's some, for a long time, I didn't like Mozart because this sort of classical period, classical music is so predictable. You know where it's going at the end, you know when it's going to resolve to the tonic and everything's going to be happy. I find that this is just happy music that is, the the more I listen to this, the more I realize that it's carefully woven music, that the counterpoint is really quite, I don't want to say technical, but quite intricate. And you can listen to it in the background. Uh, You know, you imagine some charity event at the Metropolitan Museum, and they've got a string quartet up on a thing playing just to have music so it's not quiet in the background. You can imagine this kind of music like that. But when you sit down and listen to it closely, there's a lot going on. So this is the string quintets, K515 and 516 by the Quattro Ben. Doug, what have you got? And don't pick Get Your Yaya's Out Again. <laughs> okay. Though this, this is in the Yaya's vein. I'm going to be listening to part of a collection of Johnny Thunder's music that is going to be released in April. It's called Finally Alone, which is a uh, a tribute to his album So Alone. Johnny Thunders was one of the guitar players, along with Sylvain Sylvain, in the New York Dolls. And he had a very troubled life after the Dolls broke up, but he did have a pretty interesting solo career. He had a band called The Heartbreakers with Richard Hell. Uh, he later went over to with that band over to uh, the UK and and hung out there for a while, played a lot with The Clash, The Sex Pistols, The Damned, that sort of thing. But unfortunately, uh, his career never really took off. There are people like me who know who he is, and he didn't last very long either. He died in 1991 of drug-related causes, and there's been plenty of stuff released since his death to uh, you know pay tribute to him. Most of the stuff is pretty crappy. Uh, the best stuff is the studio stuff, and apparently there is a Lost album. And the Lost album was recorded in 1990, just be- shortly before he died, in 1991, called Sticks and Stones. And this album, I don't think, was ever been really released. There may be people with bootlegs of it. I don't know. I've never heard it. But now that this stuff has been released, at least some of it, uh, a little early on Apple Music, I believe there's a full CD box set coming out in April. So anyway, that's what I'll be listening to. Johnny Thunders, Finally Alone, the Sticks and Stones tapes. This was episode number 252 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. Follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Please visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.